with the children's program being this morning, I decided to defer uh, our Advent series this year, uh, the second message to tonight. So that's where we're going to go. You know, we're kind of going to go out of sorts here, backwards, if you will, um, to cover the next message in this four-message series. And so we're going to look tonight, as we talk about this theme of O Come Emmanuel, the, the look, a look through the scriptures of looking ahead to Jesus, uh, the anticipation of his arrival and his coming, and uh, the promises that he would fulfill and the pictures. And, and that's exactly what we're going to look at tonight. We're going to look at Jesus as the pictured substitute from the book of Exodus chapter 12. So I'd invite you to turn to Exodus 12. And some of you, uh, you come on Wednesday nights um, and, and aren't working in Awana, you, you know that we've talked about Exodus 12 uh, quite recently, actually, in our Wednesday night Bible study. Um, and uh, it fits really well with, with what we're looking at this year, um, at Jesus, who is God with us, what he, can, what he has come to do for us uh, in our lives and uh, in this world. And uh, we're not going to, I wrote Exodus 12, we're not going to look at the whole chapter tonight. I'm going to pull out bits and pieces of the chapter. It was just easier to do that than to list all of the verses I was going to use from Exodus 12. Um, but uh, this, uh, I would encourage you to go back maybe later on if you haven't already uh, or weren't here for our study on a Wednesday night and read through Exodus 12 to see the bigger picture of what God is commanding of his people here. But today in Exodus 12, we see Jesus as the pictured substitute. And perhaps um, sometime in the past, you have pictured something in your mind or even something on paper and you have then felt the anticipation as you waited for that pictured goal or that accomplishment to become a reality. Maybe you've uh, built your own home. Maybe you've, you've taken that task. And, you know, I know we've had some over the years who have done that. Maybe you've built something like a shed uh, or a barn on your property, or maybe some other building, and, and you've walked through the process of what it takes to go from a blueprint to a reality, right? And for a while there, you know, as you have these papers and these drawings and you talk to the builder and the planners and all of that, you kind of have this picture in your mind that one day this is what it's going to look like and you just can't wait. You know, you anticipate getting to that day and then one day it becomes a reality. Maybe you've uh, prepared to take a trip somewhere on a vacation, maybe to some destination that you've never visited and You've anticipated, you've heard stories about things like uh, the Grand Canyon, so to, you know, for one. I was just talking to somebody the other day about the Grand Canyon, and I've never been there, and this person had, and he said, it's just unbelievable when you, when you actually see it for yourself. And so maybe you've had an experience like that where you anticipated going somewhere and, and laying your eyes on it for the first time. And throughout Scripture, in the Old Testament particularly, there are anticipations and pictures of who Jesus is as the Messiah. And as the years came and went, the people looked ahead to the Messiah's coming in order to see these things fulfilled and enjoy the realities of them. They're anticipating the fulfillment of these pictures and, these, and what, would hopefully, what would for them, hopefully in their lifetime, be a, a reality. And tonight, we see one of these pictures established at really one of the most incredible times in the history of the nation of Israel, and we see how Jesus fulfills this picture and makes it a reality in himself. And then 
As a bonus, tonight we have observed the Lord's Supper. And so we're going to see even how this picture is fulfilled in what Jesus said in his disciples. Or, or this or Jesus' fulfillment, I should say, is pictured in the Lord's Supper as we gather around this table as a church. And what we see is Jesus' death for the sins of mankind is pictured in the Passover and brought into focus around the Lord's table. The Passover was a time that where, where Jesus and where God, I'm sorry, looked forward to the work, the life, the death, uh, the resurrection, the, the payment of Jesus for the sins of mankind. And it's perfectly pictured in what God commanded his people to do. We'll look at it in just a second. So Jesus, his death fulfilled that. And people looked ahead towards that. And then as Jesus, before the night, the night that he was arrested and, and put on trial, and then later he would be crucified, uh, he established another picture that came out of the Passover. Because, again, you understand that, that the night that Jesus was with his disciples in the, last, in the upper room for the Last Supper, they were observing the Passover together. So what you read about in Exodus chapter 12 is the same thing that's going on when you, like on our Sunday mornings, in John 13 and 14 and, and those chapters, or in the end of Matthew or Mark or Luke, any of the Gospels. This is the same meal that they were observing all those years later. And we see the significance of it, especially when it comes to Jesus, who is God with us, Emmanuel. And so let's look tonight at, at two different sections. Number one, I want us to look at the Passover and, how, and understand how this relates to Jesus and the anticipation of him. But before we even get to Exodus chapter 12, we need to kind of understand what's been going on before this. And perhaps uh, you have a, a familiarity with that. Maybe you, uh, you actually say, yeah, I, could, I could teach the first 11 chapters of Exodus. But it helps us to, to understand here what's going on. Well, the book of Exodus records for us how God delivered his people from bondage in Egypt. And the first 12 chapters of Exodus in particular record God's works in Egypt to bring this freedom for his people about. When you open the book of Exodus, you find that Israel is enslaved by Egypt. The people suffered under their burdens and their oppression, and they began to wonder if God remembered them. The scriptures assure us that God not only remembered them, but he cared about their plight. We find those in the very first, in the very first chapter of Exodus. And so, God began to do a mighty work for his people. And of course, Exodus is a selected history. You, you can't put the entire history of everything that happened in those years. But you begin to see the highlights that God wants us to understand as he was working behind the scenes to bring about the deliverance of his people. He called Moses to lead people, the people out of the land. He told Moses when he called him exactly what was going to happen. He said that Pharaoh would not listen to his command. And so, um, he, Pharaoh, when he would harden his heart against God, God would give Pharaoh over to that hardened heart. Why? So that God's power could be displayed and his work could be done. And so then God began to unleash plagues upon the nation of Egypt. Now, whenever we talk about the book of Exodus and this time, we usually call it the what plagues? The ten plagues, Right? You understand that God never said there's going to be 10 plagues. This just happened afterwards, right? We look back on it now and we're like, okay, well, there's 10, right? 
But this, God never gave Moses a timeline, never gave the Pharaoh or anybody else a timeline. This just was one after another as Pharaoh continued to harden his heart, as God had said. And as the plagues intensified, God began to show there is a delineation between his people and the Egyptians. You may remember from your study of the book of Exodus uh, and your, or your read-throughs that the people of Israel lived in a separate area of Egypt in that northeastern section of the country known as Goshen. And what God was doing as those plagues intensified, the things that the Egyptians were suffering, that area where the Israelites lived, none of those plagues were affecting them. And he was demonstrating for Pharaoh and all of Egypt his love and his care for his people, that they are the objects of his personal incredible love. And God, at the same time, was waging war on the gods of Egypt. Uh, Egypt was a polytheistic pagan society. And they were learning a painful lesson through these, these encounters with God that there is no one like the Lord. He is sovereign above all. Time and again, God showed them these things. The Egyptians, by way of note here, even believed that Pharaoh was a god. And Pharaoh he was, he was powerless in the face of all these things. As he, as he tries to tighten his grip on the Israelites and he shakes his fists in the face of God, things continue to grow worse. And so now God prepares for his final act in Egypt. And, and so after nine plagues, we see the final work that God is going to do. God sends word through Moses about a final decisive plague. And God tells Moses, this is it. This is going to end your time in Egypt. Pharaoh's going to command you to leave after this. And it's a plague that will bring about the death of all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. Look back in Exodus chapter 11. See what God says through Moses in verses 4 through 7. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes distinction between Egypt and Israel. God promises here to Pharaoh through Moses, there is going to be great sorrow in the land of Egypt on this night, this coming night. And that is understandable in light of what God promised to occur. He made it very clear that no one in the land of Egypt is going to be unaffected by this plague. But at the same time, God makes it very clear there is a subset of the people who live in Egypt who will not be affected. And that is, again, his own people, the people of Israel. That's what that statement there in verse 7 means, that not a dog shall growl against the people of Israel. It communicates that God is going to protect his people from harm, that he's going to make this distinction yet again, and there will be no doubt of God's work on Israel's behalf. However, this time, the distinction comes with an important step of obedience that the people of Israel have to take. And in this obedience... They will be picturing the coming work of the Messiah. And so that brings us to Exodus chapter 12 as we look at the Passover. And the first thing you wanna, we want to notice here is the lamb that, that, God, that God commanded his people to bring into their homes 
for their deliverance. Look at verses 1 through 6 of Exodus chapter 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each of you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. God's work on his people's behalf is going to have incredible ramifications on his people. I mean, notice what God says. I mean, their entire calendar Right? This religious calendar, this standpoint of, of those sorts of things is, is all going to be based on this event that's going to happen. God is demonstrating for his people here the price of sin and even the future work of the deliverer on their behalf. He is demonstrating his holiness to them in establishing this feast. We, 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 you'll, if you read the whole chapter, you'll come to find out there is the Passover there's also the Feast of Unleavened Bread that, that comes right after the Passover there to observe in connection with this. God has promised that there is judgment on the land this night. And so, what do the people need to prepare? What they're preparing is a substitute. They're preparing uh, a, what God has appointed to be the substitute, and that is a lamb. The people were to select a lamb from either the sheep or the goats, and God made provision. If a home was too small for them to have one of these or, or for the people there, they, they could get with their neighbors and they could, uh, they could share these things. But this lamb had to meet specific requirements. Why? Because this is God's appointed substitute. And when God tells us how to do something, we need to listen, right? And he says, this needs to be a male lamb, a year old, and it also needs to be without blemish. The word there communicates the idea it's, it's free of any defects, deformities, or any other type of problems. And when, in order to make sure of this, the people were to bring that lamb into their homes and keep it for how many days? Four days. Well, you can imagine that over four days, um, if there are some defects or other things that you missed, you have opportunity to, to note that and, and, and find a lamb that meets God's specifications. And this is very serious business because this would mean the difference between the salvation or the death of the firstborn in that home, right? Whether or not this lamb met God's specifications. Because God's substitute must meet God's expectations. And then at twilight on the 14th day, four days later, those lambs were to be killed. Again, Imagine the seriousness of such an event that's happening all in this, where, where Israel was in Goshen, but then later on when they observed this feast, that these lambs are being slain all over the land. Imagine the solemnness of these homes where children lived, having grown attached to such a lamb over the previous four days. But this lamb had a purpose, and its blood would be vital in God's plan. And so we, we continue on looking at the, the Passover. We, don't see, we see not only the lamb, but we see the blood of the lamb 
that's important. Look at verse 7. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. Skip down to verse 21. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. So when they collected these lambs together, when the people got together with, the, with, with whoever and, and they killed the lambs, they were to collect the blood in this basin. And so then the, some of that blood would be taken and painted on the doorpost and on the lintel above the entrance to the house. And this is symbolizing that the price for the sin of the people, the price of that home had been paid by the lamb. The lamb had been slain, and as, and as such, its blood was painted on the doors to signify the substitute has died for all who are inside that home. Instead of the firstborn, the lamb was slain. This is a stark reminder for people, for, to the people that everyone, including God's special and chosen people, the Israelites, deserve just judgment from God. You see, sin has separated them just as it separates us from our holy, just God. And the price of sin is death. The scriptures are very clear about that. We talked about that in the first message last week, that God said, in the day you eat of that tree, you disobey me, you will surely die. And that theme is repeated all throughout scripture. The lamb in each home paid the price for those in that home. It was a lamb that met God's standard, and its sacrifice is symbolized by the blood on the doorposts and on the lintels of those homes. The blood showed that judgment had already fallen on that home. And for their obedience, God made a great and wonderful promise to his people. Look at the promise now that God makes to those who follow him. In verses 12 through 13, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, And I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And down in verse 23, For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lentil and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. So God promises that on the night he will do this, I'm sorry, the night that they do this, he will pass through the land of Egypt. And as he does so, he will strike down all the firstborn of man and beast in the land of Egypt. Man and beast, rich and poor, all experience the judgment of God. However, there is a promise here in this solemn judgment that when God sees the blood on the doorposts, he's going to pass over that home. This is because, why? Because they're not sinful? No, because the price of sin has been paid in that home by God's prescribed method. Instead, Those in that home are considered innocent. Why? 
because the death of the lamb who was a substitute for the firstborn. A blameless life had been exchanged for the sin of the people inside. Judgment had already fallen on the lamb. Therefore, God would pass over in his judgment over those homes. This is a promise from God that if you obey me, I will spare you in this judgment. It's a wonderful promise. And he is not going to go back on his word. He would accept the sacrifice that they made. And that's a great and wondrous thing. That God in his goodness gave his people a way to be right with him and to avoid his judgment. And so God keeps, because God keeps his promises, we can obey him with confidence. You know, you look at this chapter and it's very easy to get, and we should, in the solemnity and wow, that's really heavy. At the same time, look at the goodness of God who promises these great things. That if you do this, I'm going to keep my promise and you won't fall under this judgment. And so from that, there is a picture that the people are to to see and, and observe over the years. Look at verses 14 through 20. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your homes. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly. On the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone will be prepared for you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your host out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever." In the first month, from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread. And then down to verse 24 through verse 28. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and your sons forever. And when you come into the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel and Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. And the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. So with God's command, For deliverance prescribed, God then commands his people's obedience in the future. Each year, this feast, this day of the the Passover and, and and the meal that comes with it is to be observed, but also, as we said earlier, that feast of unleavened bread. And they weren't just to keep this for this year, right? This wasn't a, okay, you do this. This one time, you do this and but they were to continue to observe this feast and this, the, the, the Passover and then the feast that would follow after it in the years to come. Even after the people were delivered into the promised land, the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread continued. And each time they did this, the people would be reminded of the picture of the Passover of what God had done for them. The coming generations were to hear the story of God's great deliverance of his people. They were to understand God has a price for sin and a prescribed method of salvation from punishment. 
and God's law would further detail all the penalties and prescriptions for sin in the sacrifices that needed to be made. And the Passover each year looked back, yes, at Egypt and what God had done, but it also looked forward. The spotless lambs that were slain each year continued to point ahead to a day when God would provide a substitute for all mankind. The passage that we read before us tonight is yet another cry for Emmanuel, God with us, to come. One day, the promised lamb would come. And just as surely as the promised victor of Genesis 3, Jesus is the pictured lamb in Exodus 12. And when Jesus came to earth, we see that he is indeed the lamb of God. I would ask you to to turn now to John chapter 1. And we'll look there in just a minute and see the fulfillment of these things. The glorious truth about Jesus is that he came as the fulfillment of that to which the Passover pointed year after year. You have to understand that, you know, the the Passover is established somewhere in the 1400s, roughly, B.C. So for the next uh, 1400 years, the Passover is observed if the people are, are obedient. Of course, there were years they missed that because of exile and other things. But for 1400 years, the Passover is to be observed year after year after year, looking back to Egypt and looking ahead to the Messiah who would one day come. And Jesus is the fulfillment of all of those Passover lambs that were slain. He, and furthermore, he is the fulfillment of all of the hundreds of thousands of lambs and other animals offered all throughout Israel's history. So therefore, when John the Baptist saw Jesus on this day recorded in John chapter 1, he declared the truth of who Jesus is for all to hear. Look at John chapter 1 and verse 29. The next day, he, that's John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him. It said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What does John call Jesus? He calls him the Lamb of God. And what does Jesus do? John says, He takes away the sin of the world. This is a new concept, okay? Because understand, Passover lambs did not take away sin. Passover lambs covered sin. Lambs and other sacrifices offered in the temple never took away sin. They covered sin. They stayed God's hand of judgment on that specific night in the Passover. And the sacrifices offered in the temple over the years, as they covered sin, they were offered in a prescribed way but they were offered subsequent to one's sin, and their effectiveness ended there. They could never offer any lasting fulfillment. They could never bring any inward change. They could only pay the price for what had been committed. And God was very specific in his law. If you commit this type of sin, this is the type of sacrifice you offer. And so you go, and you go through all of that, and you offer the sacrifice, and then you go home, and you commit that sin again, and then what? You go back to the temple, and you offer the sacrifice, right? Because the last one doesn't, it doesn't have anything to do with the future. And every year, out, now this is outside of the Passover, right? It's the different day that God set up, the Day of Atonement. They would, they would offer sacrifice for the entire nation. 
And how many times do they do that? I mean, how, how many years do they do that? Well, ever since God established it, year after year after year, they had to do that. Because the effectiveness ended when that sacrifice ended. Another Passover lamb would need to be slain the next year in commemoration and expectation. Uh, The the worshiper would return to the temple to offer sacrifices yet again when he committed the next trespass. But Jesus is much, much different. John says that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When Jesus died on the cross, he died to offer a way for your sins to be forgiven and taken away off your record once and for all. In him, you can be, here's a a great Bible word for you, I'm sure you've heard it, but if you haven't, or if you're not sure about it, here's a good chance, right? You can be justified, which literally means declared righteous in the sight of God. That's what Jesus offers. We read in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, And you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. That's the picture of what forgiveness is. That's what it means to take away the sin. That, that the, 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 the price has been paid. The, only the fulfillment of the pictures can do this. There's no animal or mere human that can remove the stain of sin. No one has the authority or the power to declare one free from guilt and free from sin. Only God can do this through the finished, completed work of Jesus on the cross. This is the hope of the gospel. This is the fulfillment of the Passover. And in this, and as this fulfillment, Jesus is the perfect final sacrifice. Look at Jesus as this sacrifice. The lamb that was killed for the firstborn on the night of the Passover was a sacrifice to God. It was the propitiation of God's wrath on sin. And every subsequent sacrifice offered within God's sacrificial system was just that as well. God is holy. And because he is holy, he cannot tolerate sin. He has nothing to do with it. Sin is the opposite of God. God is just and therefore must judge sin. He is the only one who can carry out just judgment. The wrath of God is rightly poured out on sin because it offends his holy nature. So therefore, a propitiation is necessary. That's another big theological word for you that's important. What is a propitiation? Propitiation is that which is given to appease God's wrath and pay the price of sin. And that's what Jesus is. Jesus is the sacrifice who meets God's fullest expectations. He lived a perfect life, fulfilling God's law. He then died on the cross, willingly giving his life for ours. We read of him in, first, in the Old Testament, Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a lamb that before its shears is silent, so he opened not 
his mouth. First John 2.2, 2, John says he is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So what is Jesus? Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. As man, he lived and died for the sins of mankind. As God, he perfectly fulfilled God's law, and he can effectively apply his sacrifice to all who trust in him. And on the evening before his crucifixion, Jesus gave to the disciples his own picture of his coming work on the cross. Lastly tonight, let's look at this picture that Jesus established. On the night of Jesus' betrayal and arrest, he met with his disciples in a place that the Bible simply calls the upper room. And there, as I mentioned earlier, they held the Passover together. As Jews, these men who were with, with Jesus had observed many such Passover feasts in their lives. But this time, it was different. This time, Jesus transformed this observance into something new and different in their lives. Here, at this last supper with his disciples, Jesus established what we will observe tonight as a church, the Lord's Supper. And Jesus, using elements found at the Passover meal, pictured his work on behalf of mankind as a substitute for sin. We read in Matthew 26, verses 26 through 28. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my, is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the, for the forgiveness of sins. Now, the Passover meal had many different elements, one of those being the lamb that was sacrificed for the, for the firstborn that was roasted for them to eat. You notice here that Jesus did not take the lamb and use that as the picture that night. He did not, uh, that, that lamb that was killed year after year does not picture the finished work of Jesus. He's done away with that. When Jesus died for sin, it was the completion of those things. No longer would lambs need to die to cover sin. But let's take it a step further than that. No longer could lambs die to cover sin. This is not like a pick which one you want, right? This is not, well, you can either keep sacrificing lambs or you can trust in Jesus. You just kind of pick the system that works for you. Because with Jesus' death and resurrection, that comes to an end because he ushers in a new and better covenant with his people. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews 8, 6 writes, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. Jesus finished the work. What did he say on the cross? It is finished. In him... You and I can be free from guilt and sin, adopted into the family of God, given spiritual and eternal life, and empowered to live for the kingdom and glory of God. That is an amazing thing. 
Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, has come and finished his work. And tonight, as we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are reminded of that work. You see, the following ordinance set forth by Jesus for the church, in in following these things, we proclaim the gospel until he comes again. We thank him for that finished work, and we seek his continued work in our hearts today. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. And that's what we thank God for tonight. That Jesus' death for the sins of mankind is pictured in the Passover and brought into focus around the Lord's table. Jesus is the pictured substitute of the Passover and all other sacrifices prescribed by God. And as the Jews observed this feast year in and year out, they were reminded of God's great work on their behalf as well as looked ahead to the day that God would send his perfect lamb. Jesus has come. And because of that, remission of sin is available in him. He lived a perfect life and gave that life for us. His blood has been shed to wash away our sins. What a great and glorious truth. And tonight as we prepare to partake in the Lord's Supper, let us, remi- let us remember these things and thank God for his incredible gift. Christmas is a time of gifts, and we give these gifts to one another because of the greatest gift God gave to us, the gift of Jesus. And the Lord's Supper, I believe, is an appropriate Christmas celebration. It is an appropriate thing for us to do as we near the Christmas holiday. Because as believers, it reminds us of the very reason Jesus came to earth. He was born to die upon Calvary. The cross was always in view from the time Jesus was born. That was why he came. He died upon Calvary, suffering that we might be set free. And so let us give him our praise and thanks tonight in these things.